you would please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. We'll read the word of God and then pray. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? But we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father, give us ears to hear uh, this amazing text and, and the awe that you have shown me, I pray, Lord, that you will show my brothers and sisters. And that, Father, any, any this day who don't see this, please, Lord, let the today be the day of their salvation. Remove the scales from their eyes and open their hearts and their souls to the awesome glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We celebrate the birth of our Savior. May this text jump out at us in all of its awe. To your glory and praise. Amen. This phrase that you see here, just in the first part of verse 14, uh, let me try to um, make it as simple as I can. It's a command. It's not negotiable. It's not an option. It is a command. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That's what he says. He's saying, I don't want you to evaluate it. I don't want you to contemplate it. I don't want you to be bound with an unbelievers. This text is quoted much, this verse. It is quoted as much as it is misused. And I believe it is misunderstood. But when I look at 2 Corinthians and I understand that the whole book is dealing with quote-unquote ministry. This is what you do because you are saved. I also see that it is the cornerstone for a Christian life. But I also see that it is the cornerstone for Christian ministry. And one of the reasons that the church today in the United States is ineffective is because they violate the word of God on this command. It's important. This text... 6.14 through 7.1, Paul is emphatic that there are two worlds. Only two. And they are opposing each other. One is righteous, one is lawless. One is light, one is darkness. One is Christ, one is Belial, Satan. One is the temple of God, the other is idols. It's real straightforward. He's not hiding it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand what he's trying to tell you. And yet, why do we struggle with it? He's saying these two worlds, being opposing as they are, cannot work together. These two worlds, opposing as they are, cannot have fellowship 
together. Paul is extraordinarily clear. Very clear on this. Believers can't live in both worlds. Can't do it. The Corinthians were trying. Many of you have tried. The church in America today is adamant that they can do it. And they're working hard at it. And Paul is real straightforward here and says, you can't. You become absolutely ineffective. You can shipwreck your faith. You can shipwreck other people's faith. 1 John chapter 2. John says, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. (laughs) That seems pretty simple to me. And yet I guarantee you that everyone in this room at some time or another has had a battle because they had a love of the world. And I'll, I'll ask you a simple question. How'd it work out for you? Verse 16, we quote this all the time, but verse 15 tells us how to get away from it. Verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17, The world is passing away, and also its lust, but one who does the will of God lives forever. What was the will of God in that text? Do not love the world or the things of the world. That is a deep theology. That is straightforward and straight cut. James says it this way. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Was that really what he means? <laughs> yeah. That is really what it means. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay. There are people who try to live in both worlds. There are people who think that in the name of ministry, that I can bounce back and forth between these two worlds. I was having a discussion. I can't remember with who. Some of you guys know that uh, I do work on motorcycles. And uh, I have a tendency at times working on motorcycles to have to go into places that... uh, I don't like. Okay, but you still, that's part of what I'm doing. And everybody makes these statements to me and they says, well, you mean you just walk into a biker bar? Uh, Yeah, if I'm going to get the keys for his motorcycle to take it back and work on it, that's normally how you're going to have to do it because if you just jump on it and take off, you could get shot. 
Okay, so you go in, you tell the customer that you're taking his motorcycle. But you'll bring it back. But anyway, I don't think people understand how much time I spend in prayer before I even go. I don't want to be there long. I don't need to be chitty-chatty. I just go in, know who these customers are, pick up their bikes, and take off. But it takes fervent prayer, very much fervent prayer. There are people who are trying to live in two different worlds. You can't do it, people. Romans chapter 12. We've heard it. We know it. We love it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I have people who call me and say, well, what kind of worship service you have? (laughs) Living and holy sacrificial. And we are not conformed to this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we know how to prove what is acceptable. The word transformed there is to be pressed into a mold. Okay. There are too many Christians right now who have been redeemed out of the lost world and have stepped their face back in it and are being pressed back into the mold. And they can't understand why they're so uncomfortable. Paul says, separate. A believer has been moved from one world to another and there is no back and forth. Corinth, many of the Corinthians were trying to do this. They named the name Christ and they hold on to the old idols, the old pagan ways. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul speaking of this great and mighty church. They had come out of idolatry to serve the true God. Corinth had made a clean break, but they had been subtly sucked back into the old culture. And it was trying to blend it together in the Corinthian church. Listen, that culture is everywhere and it is in everything. Okay, same as today. Absolutely same as today. I hear far too many Christians praying for temporal things and not praying for eternal things. That tells me that the culture has them. If you're praying for temporal, then you have the culture. In Corinth, the culture was the fabric. It was woven in every aspect of everything that happened in the city. Temples set on a high hill overlooking the city, and they looked down upon the city. The ideas of the temple and the temple worships were the culture of the city. They were part of everything in life. False teachers take that culture and that teaching, and they feed on the freedom that is in Christ, and they mix a little bit of it. With truth, and they call it truth. The tragedy was that some of the true believers in the church in Corinth were listening. False want to make Christianity popular. They're still doing it today. We don't want Christianity to be offensive. 
You can't tell people that it's a narrow gate. What about grace, mercy, and love? So this church in an awful city. Go do your own historical background on that city of Corinth. And that was just one nasty place. Pagan community and false teachers, social and religion were all but one. The whole system was run in the immorality that was coming from the temples. It was a daily life. Daily life in every aspect was dealt with with the religion. We see it today. I just received an article that they've come out with a homosexual Bible. Really? They've removed anything to do with homosexuality or sexual sin whatsoever. Why? And a comforting. Brilliant. Brilliant. And you know what? Nobody's saying a word. Oh, well, so what? But, you know, God loves them too in their repentance. Corinthians were having a problem. The church in the United States is having a problem because they confuse the confusion of the false teachers, but also the pop culture. Paul says, don't be, some translations, unequally yoked. Don't be bound with unbelievers. Don't be tied into them. Pulp culture in our church today, will it'll help us be more popular. You know what? 15 years ago, if you talked to a person who came out of a church and you asked them, did you worship today? And if they said yes, and you say, well, how do you know you worshiped? You know what they would have told you? The word of God was preached. You know what they tell you today? The music was awe-inspiring. Really? That's worship. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. This is your acceptable service of worship. How does that fit with music? How does that fit? How do you have a man who's a musician and you call him the worship leader? Really? Worship is pointed to worthiness. Who takes you to the worthiness of God? A guitar player? A drummer? Keyboards? He's going to take you where? But it sounded good. Listen, I am not against music. I love music. Okay, but if I hear another person tell me that it sets the mood, I'm going to prison. It ain't got nothing to do with mood. God don't care about your mood. He cares about a living sacrifice that is acceptable to his service. And your mood is irrelevant. You know what? Any time that the church embraces the culture, the results are always the same. The truth and the purity of God's word becomes corrupt. It is compromised. And at best, you end up like Laodicea. 
at best. Do you know Laodicea? You're neither hot nor cold. And you make Jesus want to puke. That's the Greek text. Sign me up for that one. And I'll give him one of those anti-reflux things as I go by. You cannot partner with unbelievers in anything spiritual. In anything spiritual. In anything spiritual. Do not be bound. That is the command of the text. Believers separate from the unbelievers. Okay, that's what it says. What does it mean? Over the last few weeks, we've looked at what it does not mean. It does not mean remove yourself from humanity. It does not mean to isolate yourself in your little cave and read your Bible and don't talk to people. It does not mean that I can divorce my unbelieving spouse. It does not mean that I can separate from my family or from any contacts, aunts and uncles who are not believers. It does not mean that I can only do business with believers. It doesn't mean any of those things. It says you separate from unbelievers in religious causes and religious truths and religious systems. Do not be a part of their worship. Do not be a part of their ministry. Do not be a part of their teaching. It is an absolute separation. It goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10. You cannot cut a straight line with an ox and a donkey. Can't do it. Hanging out in idol festivals. And you can't bring that into the church. You have no fellowship with them. You have, and, and that is basically the issue that is here. False teaching ruins those who listen to it. I watch people get immersed in goofy books about the Mormons and the JWs. And I want to look at this and I want to look at that. Read your Bible. Read it. Day in and day out. Page after page after page. And once you get good at it, you don't have to know what they're saying because you know what God says. And as soon as they open their mouth, you're like, that ain't what it says. Listen, you do not have to be a theologian. You do not have to go to seminary. You do not have to be, I went to a Christian college. You don't need any of that. God gave you a book. Read it. And you know what? If that is too much for you... Come speak to me. I've got the whole Bible on CD. You can drive around and listen to it. Paul warned Timothy to warn the church. There are those, Harmanius and Alexander, who I have kicked out of the church and to teach them, given them over to Satan, to teach them not to blaspheme. We get in trouble today if we use the word. Well, you can't say that about me. But what you just said isn't true. That is blasphemy. Have nothing to do with people involved in those things. Yet, throughout history, the church continues to do this. Have you ever seen the history of Roman Catholicism? 
You know where it came from? The true living church. And yet, it's not truth. And yet, you can see it birthed, and it came out of Rome. Who? That was a strong church in Rome. Paul was going to bounce out of Rome and take off to Spain. And yet, it grew because it started embracing everything. They took the gospel into Ephesus. Number one uh, industry in Ephesus was making idols. So you end up with icons all over Roman Catholicism because I don't want to take your job from you. I need you to give to the church. Keep giving to the church, so keep working. But we'll make the statues of Mary and Joseph and Bob and Frank and whoever else we can come up with. Okay, let me tell you something. If you're saved today, okay, if you're truly saved today, and I'm going to press this one today, you're a saint I don't need the pontiff to figure out whether I can be a saint or not. So let me ask you a question. Is that truth? What would you classify that then? Blasphemy. You can't say that. I just did. You can't. uh, I, I don't understand why we struggle with this. Well, I can tell you why we struggle with this. We want to be more popular. Because, see, if people like me, they'll like my Jesus. Tell you what, when he comes cruising out of the clouds next time, they ain't going to like that Jesus. I heard a term that's being used regularly now, and they call it common evangelism. Okay, I call it universalism. This is how we can reach people. I know Christian schools. I know seminaries right now that have teachers and administrators who are not born again. So what are you going to get for an education? Let me ask you this. What kind of straight line you suppose you're going to plow? If I've got professors who are not believers. It shipwrecks believers. Because they can't go straight. And it's a false assurance to non-believers. I remember the day I got baptized, the guy I got, one of the guys that was baptized with me, he said that was his, I don't know, fourth or fifth time. I was very young in the faith right then. I was like, do you do this monthly? I don't understand. What's up with that? I didn't understand that part of the deal. And he says, no, I'm just making sure. All right. Paul, in this text, gives us five reasons. It's in that outline. Um, Five reasons that separation is mandated. Okay. Uh, I guess five motives, I guess if you wanted to use that. Five reasons, five motives to obey this command. If you go back to your text, the first one you see there in verses, uh, verse 14 and 15. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness. 
Okay, he basically what he does in these next two verses, starting with that one, he asks four questions. Okay, they're rhetorical questions. All right, uh, and the truth of the matter is, they all have a negative answer. And basically, he says there is no partnership, there is no fellowship, there is no harmony, there is nothing in common. Okay, the way this is phrased in the Greek syntax is, it is a truth that needs no proof. Okay, if if you come from my background, it is a duh. Okay, it's it's one of those. I'm thinking that this is obvious. You can't make opposites the same. Okay, so you see the word there, partnership. Okay, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it is a synonym for the word that you know as koinonia. Koinonia is fellowship. Okay, Um, it has in mind when it's used the common sharing together. Okay, these two can't. And to use my vernacular, duh. How can I partnership if I'm righteous and how do I partner with lawlessness? Okay, righteous, do you see that word? You've heard it, you know how I what it is. It's right standing with God. Okay, but it has a little more to it than that. It pleases God. It honors God. Lawlessness displeases God. Lawlessness dishonors God. So basically what you have is doing what is right and doing what is wrong. And those two can partner how? How do they have a common interest together? I mean, that's what his argument is. You know, give me an answer here, guys. If you back up just to chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, God's righteousness has been imputed to the believer's account. Okay, what that means is, is that while you weren't paying attention, God came in and he put the absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. Okay, so a Christian is clothed in Christ's righteousness. A Christian is only as righteous as Jesus Christ. That's all. All right. We have been made Righteous. We are covered in Christ's righteousness. Okay, if that has happened, this would include the forgiveness of which sin? All of You know, you've been forgiven for the sins you haven't even committed yet. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. The unbeliever. Lawless. Unrighteous. Oh, did I tell you? Their sin has not been forgiven. They are dead in their sin and their trespass. Let me ask you a simple question. How can there be partnership there? Lawless do not abide by God's law. The lawless do not delight 
in the law of God. When I find Christians who never read their Bible, I get nervous. Something is wrong there. How can you not delight in the word of God? How can you not be as the deer at the brook thirsting? The lawless rebel against the word of God. They break the word of God. They disobey the word of God. In scripture, an unbeliever is characterized as what? Lawless. In scripture, an unbeliever is headed for eternal punishment. They do not come to the Savior and they die in their sin. Let me show you. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 23. Speaking of a tree and its fruit. Jesus warns us, beware of the false prophets. Come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Where do you see sheep's clothing? Who wears sheep clothing? Shepherds. Shepherds wear it. Right? So they look like what? Shepherds. But inward, they are ravenous wolves. Go through it and you see what it is. It's the small and the narrow gate. It leads to life. If you find it, which means there's a whole bunch looking for it. Every good tree bears good fruit. You know what that means, right? The evidence of salvation is seen. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. Again, duh. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, what? Practice lawlessness. Chapter 13 of Matthew Verse 41, speaking of Christ's judgment. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all of those who commit lawlessness. They'll throw them into a furnace of fire where there'll be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, speaking of the Pharisees, verse 27, oops, I went too far, sorry, 
Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Look what he says. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, if you want to know what damns a person, it's lawlessness. It's those people whose practice is violating the law of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Speaking of the person of Christ. No matter what they claim, it is easy to spot because you will know a tree by its fruit. They practice lawlessness. They have an ongoing violation of God's law. It is the person who comes into my office and looks at me heartbroken and sad and says, when can a Christian divorce? Give me an excuse. Give me a biblical verse. And I always give them the same one. And I never see him again. Hosea. Read the whole book. <laughs> And they don't come back again. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Hosea and you'll say, oh, bummer. <laughs> Righteous are the ones, are those who are made opposite. The pattern of their life would be what? Obedience to the Word of God. They have a passion. They have a desire. They want to know what the Word of God says. What would God do in this text? What would God do in this circumstance? What would God do? And how can He help me through it? 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 and following. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, verse 7 says, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices, practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose to destroy the work of the devil. No one born of God practices sin. It doesn't say no one born of God doesn't sin. It says they don't practice sin. It is not their habit. It doesn't say they don't stumble and fall into sin. They do. We're in an earthen vessel. The spirit and the flesh are at war. But it's not the practice. Here's one of the things that I've noticed in my walk with my king. We have an amazing ability 
to be completely aghast and profound. And oh my goodness, they've sinned. But we don't do that when it's our sin. You ever notice that? Well, but I'm under grace. Why is that? It is easy for other people's sin to annoy us. But our sins don't annoy us. I know whom I serve. I've always found that fascinating. Just a little idea. One's life is the practice of lawlessness and one's life is the practice of righteousness. And you know what? You have those two and there cannot be a harmony and there cannot be a a partnership between the two. You have imputed righteousness. You have a new creation. You have a new nature which loves the law of God and delights in His law. And you know what? That new creation, their sin bothers them. If your sin does not bother you, go back to step one. Okay, listen, I don't want to talk about anybody else's sin. I want to talk about your sin. If your sin doesn't bother you, go back to step one. Another good text. (laughs) Titus. Chapter, I don't know, pick a chapter. Titus is pretty good. Uh, Chapter (laughs) 2. I'll make it easy on it. Chapter 2, verse... 14, looking at the blessed hope is our, what we're looking at, the appearing of the glory of the, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself, verse 14, for us to redeem us from every what? Lawless deed. To purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Ask yourself a simple question. Am I zealous for the things of God? Those who have had their sins forgiven cannot partner with those who have not had their sins forgiven. Those whose passion is righteousness cannot have anything in common with those whose passions are lawlessness. You can't do it. You can't be friends with them. You can't have fellowship with them. It doesn't mean you won't come in contact with them. But you'd have no part with them. Again, it's dealing with spiritual work. The Eternals. The Eternals. You can't partner with a lawless person and help God? Really? How can you be a better minister if you partner with someone who is lawless and unforgiven? How do you do that? It will make you a better minister. Really? You you can't do it. You cannot trick the lost into getting saved. You can't do it. And I watch us. We try. Well, I'll buddy up. I'll act really nice because you know what? If they come to like me, they might like my Jesus. Well, if you truly show them your Jesus, it is going to make them mad. Not only that, if you're trying to do that, do you understand that you're in violation of his word? Do you know that he doesn't really take that 
kindly. Okay, now, people keep asking me about this, and they say, well, you know, I, I don't, we're not into idolatry and all the rest of it. Let me ask you a question. In our culture right now, what's the number one priority? In our culture right now, you hear about it every day. Money. It's money, isn't it? That hasn't crept into the church, has it? Church doesn't run around talking about money, does it? Dude, you can get chairs now that have credit card scanners on the back of it. What a deal. You don't even have to sit for the message. Just swoop, I'm out of here. You don't think that ain't what we're looking at? You don't think that your culture doesn't have a grasp on the body of Christ in the United States right now? Okay, and when I look at materialism, all I see is an idol. That's all I see. It's just something that I have put in front of God. The culture is already in. I mean, go look. Go look at what we do in, in the name of quote unquote worship. And you got to ask yourself a simple question. When you stroll into that, really? What have I just partnered with? See what I'm trying to get at? I mean, you know that in January, about 85% of churches will begin the yearly event of the proverbial stewardship drive. What's that about? Well, we have to have our capital gains and raise our funds for a year's operation. <laughs> Come on, people. Really? And you don't think that the culture hasn't gotten into the church. It's all around you. It's woven into the fabric of who you are. Everything you have is based on what? Money. Why do people want to go to college? Because I like studying. Really? Why do you go to college? <laughs> That's why I went to college. I don't know why you guys... <laughs> That's why I couldn't live in college. I was like, I shall not survive four years of this. <laughs> Why? I want to get out of college so I can be eyeballs deep in debt. And then I'll have to give me a good job so I can what, pay off my debt. That's how it's kind of working now. But people usually go to college because they want to make more money. That's fine. What are you going to do with the money? Because what I've always seen, regardless of the dollar sum, it becomes your master. Okay. Now, there are people out there that I have watched that the money don't master them and they make, you know, good money. But what I've noticed is <clears throat> it's not the norm. <laughs> it's not the norm. And when I look at people who are looking at money, the only thing I can see is that you are focused on the temporal. Focused on the temporal. Doesn't mean not be a good steward of your money. But you know what? I have watched God bless my income in ways I'd have never dreamed of. Absolutely never dreamed of. And I can go back a couple of years ago, it's a bit more than that, when I had a whole house full of people living together and 
to this day, I can sit and say, I have no idea how we made it. It's impossible because it was basically two very large families and us. And they all ate and nobody had a job but me and my wife. And our income hasn't changed from that day. And, and yet you sit there and you go, how did that happen? I was like, you know what? That's one of those that you don't want to ever write it down because it'll depress you. So you just don't write it down. And you say, thank you, Lord, that that was one of them sets of times. If you go with the footprints in the sand, that there was one set of tracks. Okay. And <laughs> I was hanging on to the top of his head saying, this ain't working. <laughs> Well, I was. You guys may never admit to that, but I can admit to it. I'm like, dude, this is just not flying. When I watch people who do this and try to incorporate the culture into their worship, all I can tell you right now, and I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can, you are in violation of the word of God. It's that simple. You can't have the table of demons and the table of the Lord. He's already said that in 1 Corinthians. And you know what? I've never met a Christian who hasn't at least tried. You can't do it. You absolutely cannot do it. Listen, there is points of contact with the lost, with unbelievers. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember having a discussion with an imam in Denver. And uh, (laughs) it was obvious I had read the Koran more than he had. Because he kept trying to tell me how peaceful it is. And I kept quoting him Quranic texts that disagreed with him. And so I walked away saying, have you not read your book? Okay, it's not a peaceful religion. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? And yet I watch people, I listen to Christians today and say, well, you know, the Allah, Jehovah, and Christ, they're all the same. No, they're not. Okay, these are the kinds of things that I want you to be aware of that are out there because if you're trying to take the world system and make a better Christianity, you're in serious trouble. You can have absolutely emphatically no partnership with them, no fellowship with them. Doesn't mean you don't run into them, but you cannot do anything together. You serve two masters. One serves Satan and you serve Christ. How do you make that work? Okay, so first part of senseless is question number one. And next week's we'll get the other questions. Let's pray. Father, to your glory and praise, thank you for this. Father, I pray that we who minister for you, in your name, your possession, be zealous to good deeds, righteous works, clothed into Christ's righteousness, that it would be you that is seen, not us. Father, help us have that heart. Help us to understand that we cannot partner with the other world. We have nothing in common. And as even the Apostle Paul points out, it's senseless. It's absolutely senseless. Father, thank you for this season. Thank you for the amazing things that December 25th brings. And yet, Father, I look at the partnership that is out there and it is blasphemous. Father, help us. Help us to rest in assurance that you will complete in us that you called us to. But Father, help us have a passion, an eagerness to walk in the zeal of your righteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you for these words. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for your Holy Scripture. 
power of your spirit and your blessed bride, your church. To your glory and praise. Amen.